The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center, Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the monthly Guest Dharma series. Well, welcome everyone. Um, my name is Joanne Skarsgård, and it's my pleasure to introduce Rebecca Bradshaw, um, who's going to speak tonight with us. Um, Rebecca's been practicing Vipassana since 1983, and she teaches at the Insight Meditation Society, um, it's IMS, you might have heard of that in Barry, Massachusetts, other places in the United States, also in Sagayan, Burma, and uh, she's a psychotherapist, the guiding teacher at Insight Meditation Center, Pioneer Valley in Massachusetts, and also the Buddhist advisor at Mount Holyoke College. And last year, in about last September, I was at IMS. It was a short version of the three-month retreat, and Rebecca was teaching. And so in a long, silent retreat, like the highlight of the day is the Dharma talk. And I especially enjoyed Rebecca's Dharma talk because she talked a lot about Minneapolis, driving around Minneapolis, and camping in the North Woods. And it was, I didn't often hear that perspective at all. <laughs> They're talking about somewhere else, so it's really great. You know, Rebecca grew up here, and so it's really nice that you come back and will share the Dharma with us tonight. And tonight's talk is called Drive Through That Town, An Unconventional Look at the Four Noble Truths. Well, thanks for coming. It's really a delight to be here in Minneapolis. As Joanne said, I grew up here, and um, I always love to come back. There's that feeling you get when you get off the airplane. It's like the body knows that this is home. I feel it in the cells in my body. It's kind of like a, oh, home. So thanks for giving me the opportunity to be able to speak in my hometown about um, what's so dear to my heart, the Buddha Dharma. When I was 18, after my first year at the university here, I took a job in Yellowstone National Park out in Wyoming. And I had this little green VW bug, as they were in those days. And I decided that I didn't want to take the interstate out to Yellowstone, but that actually um, I wanted to drive the back roads, the roads that go through the little towns where there's the little convenience store and the church and past the farms with their silos. And I felt like I really wanted to take the slow way and to arrive at Yellowstone feeling integrated and um, whole. And I did that, and it was, it was more eventful, perhaps, than the interstate. I had a little accident in uh, western Minnesota. Somebody kind of been in one of those little towns, and I got to know the insurance agent there, and um, got a little sidetracked. And um, I got to stop in uh, Montana, went to a little uh, an Native American powwow, where I was only one of two, uh, two Anglo people. I thought it was quite eventful. And I arrived at Yellowstone, though, feeling like I, like I said, I was, like I was integrated and that I was together when I arrived there. And I contrasted this recently to these trips to Burma that I've been taking where I get on the airplane in JFK and 17 and a half hours later get spit out in Bangkok. <laughs> and it's like, oh, wow, <laughs> where am I? It's really um, so much uh, less integrated. And thinking then about how, you know, we live our lives these days more like the JFK Bangkok run rather than taking the back roads. We, um, we always seem to want to take the interstate or the fast way or the bypasses. And I like to reflect sometimes and think about what we miss by that way of living and that, um, you know, we may gain a lot of speed, but what's really important in life? And where are we trying to go anyway? For me, meditation isn't about um, the interstates and the bypasses. It's about driving through the towns, through all the towns. 
So it's about connecting with life fully in all of its beauty and its sorrow, discovering intimately what this life is about. There's a quote by Bernie, Bernie, Bernie Glassman that I think expresses this very nicely. He's a Zen teacher, teaches out um, in the East. He says, at its deepest, most basic level, Zen or meditation or any spiritual path for that matter is much more than a list of what we can get from it. In fact, meditation is the realization of the oneness of life in all of its aspects. It's not just a pure or spiritual part of life. It's the whole thing. It's the flowers, mountains, rivers, streams, and the inner city and homeless children on 42nd Street. It's the empty sky and the cloudy sky and the smoggy sky, too. It's a pigeon flying in the empty sky, the pigeon shitting in the empty sky, and walking through the pigeon dropping on the sidewalk. It's the rose growing in the garden, the cut rose shining in the vase in the living room, the garbage where we throw the rose away, and the compost where we throw away the garbage. Meditation is life, our life. It's coming to the realization that all things are nothing but expression of myself, and myself is nothing but the full expression of all things. It's a life without limits. So perhaps we could say that meditation is silence, and meditation is the chainsaw. <laughs> right? It's all of life. So I'd like to talk a little bit about this way of looking at meditation within the framework of the Buddha's Four Noble Truths, which many of you are probably familiar with, um, but I will give a little bit of background. Mostly we'll be talking about the first three because the fourth one is way too detailed to include in this sort of a one evening. So the first Noble Truth that the Buddha taught is that life isn't always easy. This journey is going to have problems. There will be accidents along the way. This word in Pali is dukkha, that there's dukkha in life, and it's translated in many different ways. Sometimes it's translated as suffering. A translation that I like a lot is um, stress, that life is stressful. Now, there's the obvious ways that life is stressful. Physical pain, emotional pain. But the way the Buddha was most interested in is the fact that you can't always get what you want. That life changes. The biggest stress we experience as humans is the fact that life is constantly changing. So sometimes we think that freedom and meditation, when we start meditating, we may think that freedom and happiness and peace is to somehow get away from all of these problems, get away from the stress of being human, that maybe we can have a problem-free life and then that will solve our dilemma. So we may make happiness some state in the future when we're free of problems. We may even try to use meditation to control our minds, to control what happens, to take the bypass of driving through all the tunnels in our minds, all the different experiences that come up. But we find that that doesn't lead to integration. It doesn't lead to a full, mature, integrated spiritual life. We have a hard time accepting this, that life is stressful, that it doesn't always go the way we want. It's really interesting just to listen to the chainsaw and notice how we react to that. I don't know, maybe you guys didn't notice it, but I did. And um, <laughs> so it's quiet for a while, and then um, the chainsaw starts. How do we deal with that? That's change. That's this universe of change that we can't control. How do we deal with it is a huge part of meditation. We often deal with it by denial. A couple of weeks ago, I was flying back from the West Coast, and um, 
for those of you who fly much these days, it's not like it used to be. <laughs> and um, they, they find new ways to bump people off of flights. Anyway, I was scheduled for the last flight out of Portland to come home after 16 days of travel, and um, I wasn't allowed to board my flight, let's just put it that way. Um, and it was so interesting to watch my mind when I got this information that I wasn't going to get on the flight. It refused to believe it. <laughs> I was like, this isn't happening. <laughs> you know, and then there'd be this kind of, well, Rebecca doesn't really seem like it is happening. <laughs> and then there'd be like, no, it can't be happening. <laughs> it's so interesting to watch how we feel when things don't go the way we want. So if we try to believe that happiness is some state in the future that we're going to attain when life is free of problems, or if we try to use our spiritual path to deny the full range of our human experience, then we really sacrifice the richness of our practice. Brad Warner in Hardcore Zen says, Shazen or meditation, Meditation isn't about blissing out or going into an alpha brainwave trance. It's about facing who and what we really are in every single damn moment. And you aren't just bliss, I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> You're a mess. We all are. But here's the thing, that mess is itself enlightenment. So this first noble truth of the challenge of being human, it's a truth that we can respect. It's noble. We don't need to avoid the challenges, but actually learn how to relate to them. So the second noble truth that the Buddha taught is that we suffer because we rebel against life as it is, how it unfolds in this universe of change. That we have a craving or thirst for life to be different than it is. That we react to living in this world of constant change. We've all taken birth in this realm of change, this amazing, wild ride that we call a human life in this universe of joy and sorrow, of pleasure and pain, of silence and sound. It's so fast. It just changes so fast. I remember when I was in eighth grade, I had a science teacher, and one day he said to us, the only thing constant in this world is change. And I remember where I was standing in the room. I don't remember what he looks like, but I remember standing in the room listening to that and just stopping and going, wow. Maybe he was Buddhist, or maybe he's just a scientist. They're pretty much coming to the same conclusions these days. But it's like, that, that's what the Buddha said we have to understand. One Zen teacher says there's 7,000 instances in a second and 6.5 billion instances of life in 24 hours. 6.5 billion instances. The Buddha actually said there were more. He was underestimating the Zen teacher. <laughs> so the thing that seems pretty obvious is that if we're going to try to take our happiness in some kind of control and some kind of wish for life to stay in a certain way, we're in trouble. It's doomed to fail because changing the river just goes on and on. And this searching, this searching for finding happiness in some kind of conditions, finding happiness in silence instead of the chainsaw, That's what the Buddha called suffering. 
a few years ago, I wound up going to Burma to practice. And I went with some teacher friends of mine, and when we uh, go to this place in Shadai Hills of Burma, first of all, I, I tell some Burma stories, but before I say anything else about Burma, I want to say it's a wonderful place to practice. I sometimes talk about some of the challenges of practicing there, and then I go, oh, wow, people are going to think, why would I ever want to go to Burma to practice? It's actually a very inspiring place to practice. So we all have our own little hut, and the monasteries on this hill are the banks of the Irrawaddy River, so it goes up pretty steep up the hill, and there's a bunch of little kutis, I call them, and everybody has their own little kuti. And... Um, my friend Patricia and I would find ourselves comparing our cooties. I had a cootie on a ridge, so it was very exposed. And what was great was that there was a lot of breeze, so I didn't get many um, mosquitoes. I had a great view of the river. Um, you know, just this panoramic view of these pagodas up and down the river and the boats on the river, really beautiful. However, because it was so exposed, it was quite loud, and all the smoke from the fires of the village would come right up to my kuti, so it was pretty smoky all the time, and, um, and I heard everything that would go on in town. Now, my friend, she had this um, kuti way back in this ravine, and it was uh, quite cool. Oh, mine was hot, too, because it was exposed. It was quite hot. So her kuti was really cool, but it had lots of bugs. <laughs> And it was quiet, but it didn't have a view. <laughs> and so we sometimes talk over cooties, and then we just laugh, and we say that, you know what? There's not a perfect cootie. <laughs> yeah, that's, that was the conclusion we came to. There's not a perfect cootie. And sometimes I say that to myself in life. You know? There's not a perfect life. Do you know anyone who has one? <laughs> so the question is, what do we do with the cootie that we've been given? We need to figure out how to relate to this world of change. As John mentioned, I uh, work as a Buddhist advisor at a college in, in Massachusetts. And one day I was talking to the young women about change. And I was like, okay, the Buddha said this thing we have to understand is living in this world of change. I said, so what? I mean, why do we keep talking about change? Why is it important? And one of the women said, I just love the way she put it. She said, because that's pretty much how it is. And if you have issues with this, you need to deal with them. <laughs> yeah, we all have issues with change. <laughs> the fact that we can't control this universe, which is the corollary of change, is that we can't control the universe, that we're vulnerable in this universe. And we do have to figure out what to do with it. And now this doesn't mean, obviously, that we don't try to make our lives more comfortable. Of course we do. But what do we do then with what comes our way? The third noble truth is that there is a way to have peace in this world, just as it is that we can discover freedom within this world as it is. Sometimes the word enlightenment is used or nirvana. I get a kick out of what they're doing with this word in the mainstream these days. There's a acromidal, complete relief, complete nirvana. <laughs> All you need is mital. So what are we doing here meditating? <laughs> we'll just take mital and that'll solve it. Or here's one recently that my partner and I came across in a flooring magazine. Nirvana, an ultimate experience of some pleasurable emotions such as harmony or joy. Dream Home's Nirvana line of laminate floors will fill your home. <laughs> this has a little closer. <laughs> Talks about harmony. <laughs> But what is freedom? I, I think this is a really great question. The Buddha talked about freedom. So he talked about life being stressful and the difficulty of living in a world of change, but he also talked about freedom, freedom in our hearts and minds. 
Un tā izsaiņa. The spiritual life, monks, practitioners, we could say, the spiritual life does not have gain, honor, and renown for its benefit, or the attainment of moral discipline for its benefit, or the attainment of concentration for its benefit, or knowledge and vision for its benefit. But it is this unshakable liberation of mind that is the goal of the spiritual life, its heartwood and its end. It is this unshakable liberation of mind that is the goal of the spiritual life, its heartwood and its end. I love that word, unshakable. Unshakable liberation of mind. What does that mean? Mind-heart, because in um, the Pali languages, mind and heart is the same word. Unshakable liberation of heart. I love that. I think about that phrase a lot. Perhaps freedom is a completely unconstricted heart, unfettered heart, one that can hold all of life, all of the experiences of life in this changing universe. Maybe it's not about gaining anything, but about giving up craving for it to be a different kind of universe. And maybe it sounds unattainable when you hear unshakable liberation of heart and mind, but really each moment gives us the chance to explore this, explore what it means. That's the great thing about practice, that's the great thing about life, is each moment we get a chance to look at how we're relating to this world and how we can find more freedom. And to me, to discover this kind of freedom, we have to develop a very nitty-gritty, down-to-earth relationship to life, connection to this moment. It's not some perfect state in the future. Suzuki Roshi said, he's one of my favorite Zen teachers, no longer alive, but he said in this short book I have of some stories of his teachings, he said, or somebody wrote about him. On the fourth day of Seishin, which is like a retreat, a Zen retreat, on the fourth day of Seishin, as we all sat with our painful legs, aching backs, hopes and doubts about whether it was worth it, Suzuki Roshi began his talk by saying slowly, the problems you are now experiencing will go away, we are sure he was going to say. We'll continue for the rest of your life, he concluded. <laughs> The way he said it, we all laughed. Now, he wasn't trying to be a downer or anything, but he was talking about, I think, a quality of surrender to giving up the hope that somehow we're going to find happiness in some kind of future state and realizing that it's now that peace and freedom are possible now within our lives as they are. Tony Packer says, freedom is a vulnerable flow of aliveness with no resistance. How does he say vulnerable? A vulnerable flow of aliveness with no resistance. We are vulnerable in this world of change. I couldn't make that change last time. That's vulnerable, right? We don't like that a whole lot. We tend to resist it, most of us. And we get reactive to cover up this vulnerability. All of our wanting, all of our pushing away, all the antics in our minds. It's mostly to cover up the vulnerability. To be deeply engaged in this life, we must not fear this change is changing this vulnerability, but actually learn how to live in it with heart, with connection. I mentioned a few years ago that I went to Burma to practice. I 
had gone to Burma when I was quite a bit young, younger, but it had been many years. And um, I decided to go to Burma to practice because I actually wanted a little more challenge in my practice. A lot of the retreats that I was doing, they tended to be in fairly quiet places. And there's always much more of an illusion that we could pretty much control what's going on. So I wanted to go to Burma because I wanted to see how it would be to be challenged in situations where there was much less control of the environment. I don't think you guys need to go to Burma. (laughs) 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 You can just practice right here. (laughs) But I felt the need to be a little more challenged. And um, it was great. You know, it it wasn't so easy for me at first. The um, first day I arrived, oh, and partly going to Burma was difficult for me because I I have a kind of sensitive body and uh, very easily influenced by environmental factors, and um, so I knew it was going to be challenging. So I went to Burma, and the first day I got to this retreat center, I was showing my little cootie, and it turned out that um, there was a big cabinet in the cootie, and it was um, filled with mothballs, which are rather toxic for me. So um, it was like, okay, well, let's get the cabinet out of the room. So me and a person were trying to get the cabinet out of the room, and I pulled out my back, um, <laughs> you know, did something to my lower back. And then um, we were having this seminar in this new building they just uh, built, and they had just painted the floor with oil-based concrete paint, which was what caused my original health difficulties many years ago. (laughs) And then it turned out that the air quality was rather not what I expected either because there was all the wood smoke and the dust, um, the dry season and everything. And then the first night that I was there, there had been this new ordination and they had like um, 100 monks ordained. And what they do in Burma when they have celebrations is people don't have radios and stuff. They rent these trucks with huge loudspeakers on them. And um, so they had this all-night celebration the first night with these loudspeakers. And as I mentioned, my crew was kind of on an exposed ridge. I think they turned them off between 2 and 4. It seems like there was some kind of rule between 2 and 4 a.m. that the loudspeakers couldn't go. Anyway, so this was all on my first day at this um, play. I thought, I thought, oh, my God, I'm not going to survive. Oh, and so I had three-week retreat. And to get home, it was five airplane rides. And there was no internet access to, like, do, you know, like, point to each other's place. So I was pretty much stuck for three weeks. And um, I panicked. I just was like, oh, my God, I'm not going to make it through this. And what I did, or what I decided to do, is, you know, I said, if the next three weeks, if they're just about learning about panic, okay. I'll do it. I'll drive through that town. And it was great. I learned so much about panic. I learned a lot about freedom in the middle of panic. And it really um, strengthened my mind and heart, you know, more steps towards that unshakable liberation. People often ask us the question as teachers, they often ask us, how do I work with this or that? So how do I work with anger? How do I work with physical pain? Or how do I work with loneliness? And what they're really saying, what they're really asking is, how do I make it go away? (laughs) They don't say that, but that's in the question. And when I was teaching, um, so a few years ago, I went to practice in Burma, and then this last year I taught with my teacher there, Michelle McDonald, and we taught with a Burmese master at Saito Ulakana. And we got the, so what Michelle and I came up with was this shorthand, when people would ask us this question, we'd say drive through that town. It's basically like, okay, can you allow that? Can you feel it? Can you figure out how to relate with it with kindness? Can freedom be within the experience and not about getting rid of the experience? So it's about turning towards um, 
anything that comes up in our lives and expanding how much we can hold. The other day I was walking through the woods near my house and I had a number of um, days where I'd been feeling quite happy and for some reason that day I was sad. I didn't know why, I was just sad. And I was walking along, you know, thinking I was dealing with the sadness and then I stopped all of a sudden and I realized I was just trying to make the sadness go away. It's, it's, it's deeply ingrained, right, in all of us. And I stopped and I said to myself, what's wrong with sadness? And I allowed it to just be there and it was fine. In fact, sadness has this kind of quiet quality that's quite nice. It was surprising to notice that, that it was pleasant even a little bit. This is what we mean by drive through that town, turning towards whatever it is that's challenging us. I know that for me in my practice, my biggest teacher, well, there's been two big teachers. Chainsaws have been one of them. <laughs> I'm really serious. <laughs> and beeping traps. <laughs> but the other big area that I've worked on, um, I've had a lot of one of my best teachers, and, and, I, and I mean it about the chainsaw, it's a great teacher. You can learn everything you need to learn by just relating to the chainsaw, you know? It's quiet, so we're like, oh yeah, this is nice, and holding on to it, and then the chainsaw starts, and it's like, oh, I don't want that. I want it to go away. It reminds me of Burma when they put on the music. And I really didn't have that much trouble with the chainsaw. I don't want you guys to get any kind of ideas. But I know I can easily, or I have in the past, had a lot of trouble with chainsaws. Um, in Burma, the music would be going. They just put it on at any time of the day. You never knew when it would come on. And then they, you couldn't have, they couldn't have English language music in Burma. It's against the dictatorship's rules. So they would have American music with Burmese lyrics. And so we'd have different days, like we'd have country western in Burmese day, or we'd have reggae in Burmese day. It was just great. Um, but these songs would go, and then, you know, they're loud. They're just really loud. And so then suddenly they'd stop, and you'd feel everybody in the meditation hall go, <sighs> and then they'd start again. And it was like there was no rhyme or reason. You had no idea when it was going to start and when it was going to stop. He's a great, great teacher. So one thing that I've worked with a lot is fear. It's been one of my um, greatest teachers. And when I was in this retreat a few years ago in Burma, the teacher there talked about ten different kinds of equanimity. I was so impressed that he could talk about like ten kinds of equanimity. And then I heard of another teacher in um Thailand, Buddha Das, I think it was, who can talk about 20 kinds of silence. That's driving through the town, right? If you can talk about 20 kinds of silence. So I, I came out of that retreat and I thought, well, what can I write about? And I thought, I could write about fear. I know many different kinds of fear. And so I came home and wrote a talk on 13 kinds of fear. I think it's now expanded to 15 or 16. Would you like to hear the list? Yeah. <laughs> okay, from the most intense to the least, we have um, annihilation, the black hole, terror, panic, numb fear, dissociated fear, overwhelmed fear, alert fear, fear of a thing like a snake or something, Prickly fear, that's one way to keep people away. Fear of oneself, fear of the future, fear of the unknown, anxiety, free-floating fear, and background hum fear. So I don't mean for that to be like depressing or anything. For me, it's actually quite liberating to feel like I've explored those kinds of fear. In fact, when I wrote this talk, 
I realized that with each kind of fear that there was a different aspect of mindfulness that I'd actually have learned how to relate to, to it with and that helped me with it. I can't obviously go into all the details tonight, but it's liberating to be able to drive through all those tones of fear. And early in my practice, I would become quite overwhelmed. And I can't say that I never am anymore, but I've developed a certain ease with fear being able to meet with it, be with it. So we develop our ability to hold more of life through this exploration. But whatever our challenges, we all have our specific ones. Can we meet it? When I had this experience at the airport the other day, our other week, a couple weeks ago, it was also quite interesting. I was interested in my response. Well, first there was kind of this denial, like it wasn't happening right. And then after it happened, I was so tired. I so wanted to be home in my bed that night. And I knew that, you know, missing this flight meant that I was going to have to stay overnight in Portland and find a place to stay and everything. And so I started to cry. <laughs> and the thought, what little voice in my head, what my head said, Rebecca, you've been meditating for 24 years and you're a Dharma teacher. Since you'd be a little more equanimous in this situation. <laughs> and I said, I'm not equanimous. I'm sad. I want to go home. <laughs> so I didn't like sob, but you know, there are tears going down my cheek. I was like, okay, can I just be equanimous with crying? So yeah, that's all right. I'm going to cry, and then when I'm done crying, I'll figure out what I'm going to do. <laughs> Perhaps that's ultimately more freeing to be able to do that. And so I did. I cried, and then I figured out what to do. And it turned out fine. So when we talk about freedom, perhaps we're talking not about some kind of fake equanimity. You know how we can fake equanimity and pretend that we're equanimous? It doesn't work. <laughs> But we can be autonomous with, about not being autonomous. That's freedom, right there, to be able to hold it. So we become more autonomous by deeply holding the truth of whatever the moment is. The Korean Zen master Sansanin says, you make problem, you have problem. <laughs> we have to actually investigate how we make a problem out of life. For example, the chainsaw is just doing its thing. How do we make a problem out of that? That's what we're trying to understand with meditation. And that's how we find freedom, by understanding how we make a problem out of life. We actually get kind of curious about it. This is the goal of meditation, to really understand Deep knowing of our lives and how we're relating. Learning to make peace with life just as it is. Learning how to move gracefully through the changes of life. Anything that makes us stop and pay attention can be helpful. That's why chainsaws are great. It makes us pay attention, right? Or it might be a bird calling at twilight. The terror of a chronic illness. The grief of a loss. The beauty of a flower. Recently, my partner and I spent um, a couple weeks in the Canadian Rockies camping. And I really got into how beauty makes us, can make us stop and just pay attention. Whether it's this huge glacier moving in the mountains or a little tiny, tiny wildflower. Stop. Pay attention. And we do these kind of explorations at a rate that works for us. That's also important. When we talk about driving through this town, we don't mean that we always plunge right into our worst and most deep and difficult energies. We have to do it in a way that really works, that we can integrate. This last winter I had a little bit of a health scare. Nothing, um, well, it seems like it's better. But it was something that could potentially have been serious. And um, it was challenging, you know. There was a lot of fear that came up. And I really 
the way I would work with it was when my energy was high and I had the strength, I would really explore that fear and allow it to be there. I didn't want to contract against what was happening. I didn't want it to limit me, right? But when the energy was low, I distracted myself. I didn't go into it. I backed off from it. So this is kind of a skillful way we work with um, challenges. We have to really find... Um, it doesn't mean we should always be able to drive through every town. It means that we work with our energy level to meet our lives as best we can, and then we also are kind and take care to do it in a way that doesn't um, overwhelm us. And so then all of this talking about driving through these towns that are so challenging, paradoxically, they also open us up to so much joy and happiness. I realized that after I um, had made my list of 13 or 15 kinds of fear, that actually I could write a talk on the 15 kinds of happiness that I've experienced in my practice. That comes from being able to open to everything, including the fear. Would you like to hear the list of 15 kinds of happiness? <laughs> we have the happiness of simple presence, the happiness of sense pleasures, the happiness of stillness, the happiness of a clear conscience, the happiness of love, of compassion, the thrill of joy, the happiness of mudita, or rejoicing in others' happiness, the happiness of contentment, of giving, the happiness of peace and equanimity, bliss, the happiness of non-separation, and background hum happiness. So we get to explore those towns too. Sometimes there's this misconception that meditation makes us flat or unalive. I've heard people, you know, question that or have that concern when we talk about equanimity and peace and meditation. But that's not my experience. My experience is that we actually drive through more towns, not fewer towns, when we have a full and integrated practice. We get to be more of who we are, more of the beautiful of who we are. When I was uh, in Burma this last year teaching, I had a, a fairly light schedule, and what was great is we got to walk in the hills, as teachers, we got to walk in the hills on their time off. And so this area of Sagain Hills, I'm not sure how big it is, but there's about six or seven hundred pagodas and monasteries, and not a huge area. It's so very um, dense with monasteries, and just it's the spiritual center of Burma, and the energy is just so fabulous. So the, a lot of the pagodas were on the river, and then we'd walk up these old, old steps, and there'd be big, um, old walkways up above in the hills. And we just go walking in them, and we have certain monks and nuns that we love to visit that truly um, amazing people who spend their lives dedicated to meditation. And there were two monks that we particularly fell in love with, um, or that my teacher knew from many years before, but I fell in love with meeting this year. And we nicknamed them. We nicknamed them um, Happy Monk and Angel Sardar. Sardar is a Burmese teacher. So Happy Sayadar, Happy Monk, um, is 92 years old, and he's so happy. I have never met anybody in my life so happy. He just laughs and laughs. His energy is very bubbly, and um, he's like totally serious and totally like funny and happy and laughing all the time, both together both together. So you walk in this monastery and you can't help but just feel happy because his energy is so palpable, so strong. Then we go visit Angel Sidon. His energy was like this ocean of love. Just like this. 
So happy side, I was like, whoa, you know, and angel side, I was just like, just, I would walk in this monastery and I literally would feel like I was swimming through a sea of peace, like I could part it with my hands. It was so thick. And what was just amazing is these two really realized beings, they were so different. And I started to think, you know, I imagined Happy Side, like he would have been the class clown, right? And Angel Side, I would have been the shy kid, you know, who's in the corner. And they were both still who they were, but so much, you know, more purely with so much more of the beautiful shining through. These two um, monks were such an inspiration for me. Just really understanding how far we can carry this. So what we start to see um, as we're able to drive through all the towns, the fear and the happiness. That the self-centered stories that we tell ourselves start to loosen. That we feel stuck in our self-centered stories and it gives us more freedom to care, to love, to connect and our natural radiance or what we could call our good in nature is able to shine through so much more easily. And what we find out is that this path of freedom is no different than the path of love. So through all of this exploring and relating to all of life, we find that we feel less separate, less isolated in a lonely sense of self and more connected in this world. And then we want to do something about it, right? So this practice is like a happiness lab. We're trying to figure it out, right? Every moment gives us a chance. What is peace? What is freedom? What is unshakable liberation of mind and heart? And then what do we do with that? Of course we offer that gift. We offer that gift to others, to our friends, our communities, our planet. We spread some of that happiness and some of that metta and love in this world. So it starts with us sitting here, figuring out how we can relate to a chainsaw, sound of a chainsaw, the sound of silence, the sound of loneliness, the sound of fear, the sound of joy, whatever it is that's coming through, how can we hold it? I think I'd like to end. Hmm. That's what I want to end with. <coughs> There's a book that Jack Cornfield wrote called after the ecstasy, then the laundry. And it has one of my favorite quotes about the spiritual path. I'd like to read by some unknown teacher. In many ways, the spiritual transformation of the past decades is different than I had imagined. I'm still the same quirky person with much the same style and ways of being. So that on the outside, I'm not that amazingly transformed, enlightened person I had first hoped to become. But there's a big transformation inside. Years of working with my feelings and family patterns and temper have softened the way I hold them all. In the struggle to know and deeply accept my life, it has been transformed, and my love has grown larger. If my life was like a crowded garage where I kept bumping into the furniture and judging myself, now it's like I've moved into an airplane hangar with the doors left open. I've got the same old stuff there, yet it doesn't limit me like before. I'm the same, yet now I'm free to move about, even to fly. Let's sit for a minute and then we'll have some time for discussion. <coughs>
So we have a few minutes if there's questions or comments or sharing or anything. But it was really in its crisis. Everything was so horrible, and and now I thought it was over. But now it's like the work now begins. I feel like, especially with what, what you're saying tonight too, about just being now able to be with it. Mm. And I I just felt such ease tonight listening mm. to you with just like four months of stuff and just going. Huh. Oh, now I get to just be with it. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a rush thing, right? And kind of turning towards that rather than fighting it. Yeah. Well, I how you spoke about fear. I mean, just, it still always comforts me in a way to hear teachers talk about still having all their stuff to work yeah. with. And, but to have that ease around, around it. And, and you're kind of talking about it tonight like it's a friend. You know, and then, you know, and it's really very cool. Mm. So thank you. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's interesting you said that I kind of talk about the feel like it's a friend. For me, it's very much about befriending all of it. Yeah. And I actually understand fear as a friend in many ways. It's just trying to protect me. That's all. Friends try to protect us, right? <laughs> yeah. Can you say something about fear of ugliness? Mm. What kind of ugliness? Like suppose you're going somewhere and you think somebody is maybe following you and, oh. and something ugly may be there. Okay. Or, you know, that sort of thing. Or you're just afraid of something ugly. Right. Fear of ugliness. I think befriending fear doesn't mean that we don't protect ourselves, you know? So for me, actually, I find that when I'm able to be with fear, I actually have more clarity often about what should and shouldn't be done, and that sometimes it makes a lot of sense to protect myself. So, yeah, if somebody was following me and I was afraid, I would listen, <laughs> you know, I would do something. Um, but there's something about being able to hold fear that I find makes my decisions clearer. Because sometimes fear tells us things that aren't true, right? Sometimes fear has good information and we need to listen. And sometimes fear just tells us all kinds of stories that aren't true. And so when I can befriend fear and actually be with it, I can look at what's going on and decide if it's actually something that is true or not. Right? Does that address a little bit what you're asking? Yeah. Yeah. So, and it's like, for example, anger is another one a lot of people deal with, right? Anger sometimes has some very useful information in it. And if we can hold anger and be able to be with it and then see more clearly what it's saying, it can also, you know, it can provide us with some guidance. Um, but again, we have to know which stories to believe. We have to be able to actually look at it, because sometimes anger makes up a lot of stories, too, that are conveniently blaming the other person, but may not have the whole truth within it. Can you talk about how you deal with your panic? Panic. With your fears. I, mean, I can understand working with pain is something you can just sort of be with, but panic is... It just takes your mind and runs with yeah. it, and it's just, I don't know how you get to it, how do you look at it. So the question is how you work with panic. <coughs> it's hard, because you're right, panic really hijacks us. Um, how I work with it in Burma a lot is physically, like I would watch how it would come up in waves, 
which actually does come in waves and like they would come up and then they would go down and then it would come up and it would go down and I and I also started to learn how if I could get my energy lower that was better so moving the energy into the lower part of the body often helps with the panic sometimes with panic I mean for me I often find that I need to really find some way to calm myself <laughs> mostly because panic does so much hijack us right and you can't think clearly at all because when panic's operating the thoughts are just very very strong so often it's about you know trying to find some way to actually soothe and calm the system and steady myself so sometimes it's like a soothing kind of energy is needed and sometimes that can be um, actually about moving away from the panic. So sometimes panic is the most skillful thing to do is to move away. You know, it starts putting yourself and your energy into something that's calming. So like even a cup of tea, it's like it's physical, right? So you can drink it, drink it mindfully, but something to move the energy off and away is actually most useful with panic. But like I said, in Burma, I was also working with, and I do sometimes just work with the waves of it. And noticing the kinds of thoughts. So with all a lot of the challenging emotional stuff, the teachings are to notice what the mind does and to notice the body. Often when we're overwhelmed, going to the body's good. Now with panic, though, going to the body can make you more panicked, right? Because it's like it just gets more and more jittery. And then sometimes that means that we just need to move away from it. And that actually learning how to move out of panic is a way of learning how to work with it. Does that make sense? It's like sometimes what we we really have to do is to learn how to move out of these things like the black hole I mentioned is a kind of fear that I worked with a lot in my early practice a lot and I first realized that before I could really understand what I called the black hole I had to know how to move away from it because if I didn't know how to move away from it I just got lost in it and getting lost in it isn't really so useful and it's a lot of suffering so at first I just learned how to, when I recognized I was lost in the black hole, how to distract myself and get out of it. And then when I knew I could get out of it, then I started to get curious to explore within it. It's like, oh, what is it really like in here? You know, the black hole, it's like this feeling of spinning in outer space and nobody's going to save me. And it had this kind of, that kind of hopeless, desperate, lonely quality to it. And I got eventually then so that I could be right in the middle of it. And be mindful. This is an emotional state. It's not going to last forever. And this is how it feels. Right? And then it got to the point where actually it started to happen that the black hole would be coming. And I'd say, like, oh, hi, I know you. <laughs> it was kind of like that. And then I was like, huh? She knows me. <laughs> There's nowhere to land, you know? So now I don't experience the black hole really anymore. I'm not saying I never will again, but I don't for the most part. But it was a process that took about 10 years. Isn't you know the Buddha said for Mara? Yeah, the Buddha said, I know you, right? I love these stories of the Buddha because he would talk about Mara, which is like the personification of the devil coming in. And, and the Buddha would say, I know you, Mara. And Mara would go, oh. <laughs> and that's my own experience. It's like when we deeply know these places, they, they can't hook so much. There's nothing to hook up. It's like, hi, I know you. You're the black hole. Hi. <laughs> but, but I just, I have such a respect for these places. Panic too, you know, the real hard ones. I have so much respect for them because they're really protections. They're just trying to protect us and we have to just be so gentle and kind because it takes a long time. For a while. Yeah. Any other questions, thoughts? Yes. Um, a little more practical thing. When you were dealing with environmental issues, mm -hmm. did you try to distance yourself in any physical way? Or, I mean, did you try to protect yourself in a physical yeah. way? She was asking about when I worked with environmental. So 
sensitivities did I try to protect myself physically? Definitely. Yeah. But I, well, a lot of what you have to work with, I have had to work with with the environmental kind of sensitivity is Well, I also had to work a lot with chemical sensitivities. I'm not so sensitive now, but that was a challenge for many years. And um, just being really like easily having a nervous system easily overwhelmed by chemical kind of influences, but anything really. I just have that kind of nervous system. And for me, um, I had the panic is close to it. It's like you have to learn to work with panic also to be able to work with that kind of a system. And um, with that kind of a system, I found that it's really important to actually have, um, to really respect the limits, one's own limits, as far as what the system can handle. And, and listen to them as much as you can. You can't always do it, but when you can, to have um, enough quiet time, enough downtime, and all for the system to settle. And that's like protection. And then also strengthening ourselves so that we can deal with more, right? But it's, it's, a, it's I, you have to include the kindness and the protection is my experience too. But you couldn't really get away from like the smoke and the yeah, well, what I discovered was that I could handle a whole lot more than I thought I could, which is what was so great about doing that, right? And um, and I found that if, if, if I can separate the experience, um, the physical experience from my fear of it, mm-hmm. that if I can work with the fear and the emotional side, I can often handle a whole lot more of the other side. Because mm-hmm. the fear exacerbates it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in Burnham, right, it was all this panic, right? It was like panic because of all the environmental challenges. But I found that actually once I could work with the panic that I actually could deal with a lot more than I thought. And as far as like the seminar with the the paint floors, I actually sat near the door where a breeze came through. So, you know, I did stuff to and I did take the cabinet out of my room and so, you know, I could do what I could do, but then I couldn't tell all the villagers to put out their fires. <laughs> so but that turned out okay. My my lungs did all right. So. Yes. How did you know um how did you stop investigating your environmental reactions? How did you know when to back up and when to charge you? Could you um, explain a little bit more? Sure. Um, for instance, when, when, um, how did you know that it would be better for you to sit by the door from the field mm. as opposed to get in the middle and try and um, investigate what your body was going to do in reaction to what right. It's kind of a combination of. Um, Kindness, clarity, past experience, wisdom. Um, yeah, I knew that I was being challenged on many fronts there. And I knew that I could sit near the door without it disturbing others. You know, so it's like, it's really, it's like what the Buddha called um, clear comprehension. It's looking at the whole situation, looking at what I need, but also looking at what others need and what the right balance is in the end. And it's not always so easy, especially if the fear is really strong. So again, it's like if I could work with the fear part, and it's like, well, what's reasonable to do in this situation? And it was reasonable for me to sit near the door where um, the, I didn't have to deal with the fumes quite so much. So it's really, it's, um, it's looking at this. Yeah. Yeah, and and to make that judgment call clearly, it is really important to look at the emotional experience because the fear will sometimes be overly protective. I think we have time for one or more, one or two more questions. I can go until one hand at some point. Yeah. The question <laughs> to the last one or observation or whatever. Um, 
I guess my question was about fear of fear. Yeah. And then I, I had a memory of when I went into a, a sweat, like a Native American sweat. The first time, there was a, and I went in there and I was far from the door. And I had a lot of panic. I learned a lot from that. But the next time I did it, you know, I told the, told the teacher about my fear. I stayed by the door and just knowing I helped Chris because it calmed the fear of the fear mm -hmm. of the being enclosed, I guess, was the cause of panic. Yeah. That's my observation. That's how I work with it. Yeah, that sounds like you're balancing it with kindness. So it's like we're not always trying to push ourselves 100% through everything. That's so much, it's too much sometimes. Sometimes it's important just to be more kind and gentle. And, and again, it's like I said with the, um, the fear this, this year when I had these health challenges, it's like when the energy's there and we're curious and want to explore and see how much we can extend what we can hold and go for it. And when our energy's lower and we're tired or we just don't have the um, interest, it's okay to be kind and to find ways to soothe or um, be more gentle. Yeah, and that put yourself so deep in it, so like you said, you can move away from the yeah. black hole a little bit and say, hey, I can, it's okay from here. Yeah. Maybe the next time you move to the back. Okay, so I'll look at it deeper. Yeah. It's like the right it's like the question we're asking is about what's right effort or skillful effort according to the Buddha and um you know, it changes. It's so circumstantial. Effort can look really different at different times. Yeah. Any last question? Yes. What is the fourth noble truth? Oh, okay. So the fourth noble truth is there is a path um, that helps us that, that helps us develop peace and freedom. And the path has three major parts. There's ethics, ethical conduct, mind development, and wisdom. And so there's eight steps to the path. So because they have at least eight more talks. <laughs> um, yeah, it's basically the Buddha summed up all his teaching in these four noble truths, so you could definitely say a whole lot more. <laughs> um, yeah, so I think it's time to let Joanne make a few announcements. Thanks so much for your sharing and for your attention. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.